Hey everyone, this is Stacey Lindis from Podcast PD, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual host. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. A dysregulated staff will have dysregulated students. And when we are coming in and feeling so reactive and when we're anxious about all that's on our plates as educators today. I mean, we're entering the testing season now, mm-hmm. you know, right? This I is do. March <laughs> yep. and April. I mean, one of the things that I'm sharing with districts and, and again, the leadership of a building is critical to educator well-being. Welcome to the Burned In Teacher Podcast. I'm Amber Harper, and the educators on this podcast are brave enough to share their stories of burnout with the world. On BIT, we get real, we get honest, and we take action. Action against the burnout with stories from burned out teachers, advice from experts, and actionable steps you can take today to beat the burnout and become a happier, more fulfilled human being. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Burned In Teacher Podcast. This is one part burnout and all other parts action, inspiration, and support for teachers dealing with burnout. Last week and last month, we talked a lot about how to create better balance in our schools and in our classrooms and in our life. How's that going? Let me know either on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Let me know how it's going with your balance in your life. Take pictures or screenshots of things you're doing to take control and tag me at Burned In Teacher. Today is episode 28 and the first episode in a new month where our theme is all about trauma in my classroom and my life is burning me out. Before we jump into this interview, I'm so excited to tell you that this episode is brought to you by two incredible events that are coming up in the Burned In Teacher world. The first one is, of course, the Burned In Teacher Tribe program, also known as the Burned In Teacher Small Group program, that starts the week of April 8th. If you're feeling isolated, unbalanced, unsupported, and just overall burned out of teaching in life, this is the program for you. Starting the week of April 8th, as a small group, we'll be meeting once a week for one-hour group calls where we'll talk all things action, inspiration, and support for your specific needs, as well as lessons on how you can bring more burned in into your career and life. And you'll get access to our private Burned In Teacher Tribe Facebook group, where you'll meet other BIT mentors. These are graduates of previous programs who are continuing to burn in by sharing wins as they continue their Burned In Teacher journey. Don't wait. There are only a few spots open for the Spring 19 program, and we'd love to have you join us. Go to burnedinteacher.com slash BIT coaching to learn more. The other exciting event that this episode is brought to you by is the Renew, Recharge, and Reignite Teacher Wellness Retreat that my good friend Kim Strobel and I are co-hosting together. This two-day retreat is your chance to step outside of the classroom and step back into your life. You'll learn tips, tricks, and techniques for injecting happiness back into your teaching practice and your personal life. You'll leave burnout behind and walk away renewed, recharged, and reignited with courage and confidence to face next year's challenges. You'll learn five happiness habits to increase personal and professional positivity, methods for fostering relationships with students and coworkers, how to accept your past journey and make plans for changing your future path, and ways to rebrand yourself as an educator and human being, and much, much more. It will be held June 10th and 11th in Nashville, Indiana, a beautiful and quaint town in central Indiana. And I have to tell you, seats are limited, so don't wait to register. Right now, Kim and I are offering a fast action bonus of $60 off of the standard ticket price if you register by April 15th, so don't wait. Check out bit.ly slash teacher retreat or burnedinteacher.com slash retreat to learn more and register. 
And don't forget to bring a teacher friend because that accountability is going to be critical as you leave this transformational event and move into your summer and eventually your brand new school year. Go to bit.ly slash teacher retreat or burnedinteacher.com slash retreat to learn more today. Today, I'm so excited to share my conversation with Dr. Lori Desatels. She's an assistant professor at Butler University in Indianapolis. Lori's passion is engaging her students through neuroscience in education, integrating mind-brain teaching and learning strategies into her courses at Marion and now Butler University. Lori has conducted workshops throughout the United States and abroad, and in this episode, Dr. Desatels shares her experiences with working with students coming from traumatic backgrounds and will educate us on the four parts of educational neuroscience. She's also going to take us through several steps that we can take to co-regulate students who are becoming escalated in our classrooms. She's also going to talk about how we, as educators, can co-regulate ourselves, especially after we've gone through trauma in our own lives, and ways we can help ourselves and our coworkers who are suffering through traumatic experiences in their lives. I'm so excited to share this interview with you, so let's jump in. Dr. Desatels, thank you so much for being on the podcast today to talk to us about student trauma and teacher trauma. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. And um, and it's um, unfortunately, but then fortunately, um, that door is widening to some mental health and emotional health challenges um, for our students across the country. But but then the fortunate thing is that we now understand the research is really informing our practices for ourselves, mm-hmm. our well-being, and for our students. It's a It's got a lot of breadth and a lot of depth within that topic. So let's start with you. I'd love to learn more about your journey in education and how you started and how you got to what it is that you're doing now. Sure. So I am a former special education teacher. And... Um, when I began teaching, I taught children in a self-contained classroom with the classification of emotionally disturbed. Mm-hmm. And in the early 90s and late 80s, um, oftentimes in a self-contained classroom, you had a variety of what we call now neurodiversity. So I had children and adolescents who came with the classification or ruling of um, autism, specific learning disabilities, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So, um, but as I look back and, and what we did not know then, when we, when we use the classification of um, oppositional defiant disorder, or we look at conduct disorder or reactive attachment disorder, all of those disorders listed in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, for Clinicians, um, and I believe we have a DSM. This is, I should know this. I think it's five revised or six. But the point is that many of these children and adolescents have experienced significant adversity in their lives. And really, when we talk about those, that is what I started doing, was working with children that I, at the time I did not understand what I understand now, but the emotional disturbance was really a brain that had wired to the experiences of toxic stress. Mm-hmm. So I, after leaving um, the classroom, I was in the classroom for seven years, I, um, my colleague and I opened up a counseling center for children with behavioral and emotional challenges and their families. So I did that and then worked at Methodist Hospital here in Indianapolis on the adolescent psychiatric unit as a school liaison. So we um, really kind of mediated um, and helped the adjustment of returning to school or leaving school when there was um, some type of a psychiatric crisis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I had my own family of three children and, um, and went back to school then um, for my doctorate. And at that time, I really wanted to kind of move a little bit away from education and acquire more of a holistic view. So it's in philosophy, but... Um, my work was looking at middle school children that um, young adults really that were struggling. And um, so for two years, I worked with um, seventh and eighth grade students in my field work. 
and um, really looked at what they were saying to themselves when things went awry. And a lot of that research was based um, upon Dr. Martin um, Seligman's work, um, who is really known for his work in positive psychology. So I began teaching at Marion University. And um, when I was at Marion, it, it struck me that we needed to understand how the brain learns, how the brain behaves, how the brain socializes, and what was beneath these behaviors we were seeing. And to be honest with you, seven, eight years ago, when I began this work in the application of educational neuroscience, it was met with, I can't even tell you how much resistance. Um, My evaluations at Marion just were in the toilet. Um, You know, graduate students were coming in with a mindset that it takes one effective teacher to change the culture of a classroom and a school. Do you have an explanation to why you feel you were met with such such resistance then? It was really, yeah, it was really interesting. At the time that I was met with this resistance, which is really a gift, there was also the zero tolerance policy being um, implemented throughout districts and schools. And so for the smallest infractions, um, at that time, schools were thinking and were implementing practices where it was you know, just um, come down on these kids hard. And if, if and they will learn their lesson through severe punishment. And, and and all of that was happening at the same time. So what I was teaching, you know, to the graduate students at Marion and what they had come to Marion with in their training was clashing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but it's really interesting. I, I just listened to my heart and my mind. I have to say both. And um, I just intuitively, it, it, and again, it was stressful for me because I just, when you're just met with such resistance, it's easy just to throw in the towel. And, um, but as, as the research began to pour in and, and it, it, it took a while, but as that research was recognized, then we began to understand that when we punish in traditional ways, we are actually unintentionally activating the stress response systems in our brains and bodies. And we are oftentimes re-traumatizing children um, because we're just getting compliance or a little obedience, but we're not getting any type of a long-term behavioral shift or change. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's been quite a journey. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of a long answer to your question. But that's where, and when I came to Butler, when Dr. Shelley offered, uh, when she just graciously offered a full-time faculty position to me, she really is a visionary. She saw this being so needed in our uh, higher ed College of Ed teaching programs and our pre-service teachers need needed this because we've moved away from behavior management. This calls mm-hmm. for co-regulation now. So we're so is that so the it, official title to this is co-regulation rather so than behavior management? Yeah, I, I really my my colleague Michael McKnight and I prefer that, and we wrote about it, you know, in our newest book um, because really what we're seeing is. You can't manage another human being. I mean, when you really think about it, you know, we we can only control ourselves. And to manage another, it's just really um, setting everybody up for um, failure. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the research, many of these children that come into our classrooms have not had the experiences of another healthy, emotionally attuned adult to in those early years to model those behaviors and to lessen the um, I'm trying to think all the stimuli coming in to lessen those um, you know all of that what you hear what you see um, how you feel your way around the world and we need a caregiver who is attuned to us and who can soothe and touch and use 
the warm eye contact and calming motions so that we can move through our worlds um, mm-hmm. in healthy ways. So it sounds like you're ready to talk about what teachers can do to support their students going through trauma. But I have one quick question about something that you said. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. you started in the classroom and now you are doing what you're doing full time. Can you tell me, have you noticed a difference in the severity of this trauma? Um, Is there an increase of it? Or do you feel like it's always been there, but we are now bringing this into light? I I think that's a great question. And I really do feel it's been there, but I also feel there has been an increase. And I don't don't think any of us can say definitively why, but I do feel it's multifaceted. Mm -hmm. So I think um, there has always been, um, you know, there's been this challenge um, in our, in the Western part of the world for us to, um, you know, feel like we can share vulnerability and we can share, you you know, our anxieties. but I do feel with the increase in poverty, um, you know, we really are, I mean, our children are still the poorest population, you know, in our country, our children. And um, so that affects, poverty affects so many other aspects of the ad, the adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. that kids come in with. Mm-hmm. So, and then we have an increase in the drug you know, epidemic and in addiction. So, um, and it's not just the opioid epidemic that has been highlighted, but, you know, also in, you know, other areas of the country, um, you know, there's been a lot of addiction issues in our, you know, more urban areas too, that Mm -hmm. was not, has not been given, um, you know, the, um, headline mm-hmm. that the opioid epidemic has been given. So it's, I think it's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, we are seeing an increase, but we also are opening that door of awareness so that it feels safe or feels safer to share. Mm-hmm. You're so, so right. So tell us some things as educators working with kids in our classrooms every day or as administrators working mm-hmm. with students. What are some ways that we can help support these students who are acting outwardly because mm-hmm. of this trauma in their life? So um, this is going to sound so trite and it's going to sound, you know, well, duh, you know, this is, we, we know this, but um, when you, when we think about the application of what the research is sharing, and as I mentioned, when our children are coming in so rough and as you've heard me say, and so dysregulated, um, that is what we're really seeing is a child or an adolescent who has not had consistent, repetitive, patterned relationships. And so we know that attachment is the carrier of all development. And children who come into our classrooms and adolescents who are not securely attached. And again, we see children an increase in foster in foster care, um, children coming from the foster care system, because 80% of um, DCS, CPS calls are about neglect in our country right now. And that's another adversity that, that is multifaceted. So these children, when you're moving from home to home or you have unpredictable chronic adversity, it wears and tears on brain architecture. So in looking at what we can do, building these relationships and building and strengthening attachments with these children and adolescents is the first piece of this. Mm -hmm. And that is so much easier said than done because it is really hard to, to feel um, that warm exchange when a child has screamed at you or has shown such disrespect. And part of the work that I'm doing right now with Butler is I have a course release. And so I'm in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really feel comfortable even doing this podcast with you if I weren't in the classroom. So two mornings or a morning and an afternoon a week, I'm with middle school students this semester, just because I don't want to 
I'd never ever want to become removed mm-hmm. from what educators are experiencing. And and I get the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't change when I'm in the classroom. So um, I think that I, I would say that the, the, the biggest thing we can do is when a child or adolescent escalates, it's traditionally, it's been traditionally um, practiced that we escalate with them, not intentionally, but sometimes we find ourselves in the power struggle or in the conflict cycle. And one of the things that I want to say to educators is that we need to step away at that point and we need to take care of our own brain state because a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a student. So not only do are we do we need to step away and take our three deep breaths, and or 10. (laughs) But we also need to model that for our students, because they come to school with little to no experience of how to get calm. Mm -hmm. So really that the this educational neuroscience has four legs. Attachment relationship um, is one of those legs. Co regulation is another giving students a sensory opportunity to regulate their nervous system, whether that is through sound, whether it's through breathing, whether it's through a touch, whether it's through a movement. And then the other four, the other two legs of this, we are teaching students about their neuroanatomy. That is what I say to teachers. And one of the things that I want to share is that you don't have to be an expert. When I, when I go across the country sharing this, it is so, we, we are, you know, we typically think because we are a teacher or an administrator that we should be the experts in our content. And I want to say, how cool is it to be able to talk about the amygdala with your students and you both are learning at the same time? Mm-hmm. You just don't have to be the expert. In fact, it levels the playing field and it builds a relationship when you're learning about this together. So that's the third leg of this. So we've got attachment. We've got regulation. We've got um, te- learning about our own neuroanatomy. And then the fourth and most important leg of this uh, framework is our brain state. It's educator brain state. Um, because we just cannot do this well when our cortisol and adrenaline and our stress response systems are activated. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me of any good resources that we could send teachers to either online or through books? Because I know what it's like as a teacher to be told that we really should do this. We really should build these relationships. We really should pay attention to our brain state. But the question always becomes, okay, I will do that, but how? Yes. So um, I absolutely can share. Um, So we... um, Ed Utopia, um, I write for them, and for probably the past two years, the last 15 articles that I've written that are um, based in research and, and, and evidence are about building connections and attachments through the you know conflict. And um, also my website, um, which is revelationsineducation.com, has um, a lot of good resources. I, I, can I, would I be able to share a couple right now during the podcast? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yes, go for it. Um, let's, so let's say, and again, this is what we want to focus on is the process. We don't want to focus on the end product because you're not brain architecture, whether it's healthy brain architecture, connections that have wired and fired together for um, the purpose of compassion, the purpose of um, being able to um, empathize or those experiences of shutting down and turning off or reacting um, in a real negative way, those happen based on our own experiences and they take a while to develop. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to go away over, you know, just overnight. So one of the things that we're talking about with regard to attachment are touch points. And, and I share with teachers, um, there is an old, old strategy that was um, discovered and researched well in the 1980s. I shouldn't say old, old, because <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but <laughs> it's called the two by 10 strategy. And it's where you take a student 
um, some of your toughest kids and you really are intentional um, at two minutes for 10 days in a row you talk with them about their passion about what they did over the weekend about you know how their game went or how their performance was or what did you have for dinner or who you know what are you you know what what's the tell me some great music that you're listening to mm -hmm. and for two minutes 10 days in a row this is a way to really strengthen attachment because as Rita Pearson says, we work for people we like. Um, we respect people who respect us. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a touch point that, you know, we are sharing with teachers. Another one is validation. And I am horrible at this. This is one I'm working on constantly because you hear validation and you think, oh, I know how to validate. But really what we typically do is a student will tell us something you know they'll be upset and they'll say well that's just not fair or you know she didn't you didn't do anything when she you know yelled out mm -hmm. and so what we'll do is we will respond with an answer to their complaint um, and we tend to get escalated but what really strengthens relationships is when you hear the feeling beneath the words and you mirror that so a validation is not encouraging them it's not then asking a question so what do you need not yet but it's really saying wow you sound so frustrated or this must feel awful to you and then you stop and you just wait until they respond because if you're correct they will let you know mm -hmm. and if you're way off the mark they will also let you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, validation is, you know, another touch point that we are um, using with students and and really using bell work and using morning meeting and using um, a two or three minute or five minute time at the end of the day to create a ritual or a closure so that we are what John Cita calls creating family privilege in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is many of our students are returning home to environments of un chronic unpredictability. And they really look to school mm -hmm. for that, for those structures and those boundaries and that predictability. So um, having a chant, having a routine, having a check-in um, at the end of the day, um, you know, where we, you know, share um, an affirmation or we share, um, you know, just a visual, anything um, is really, really significant. So I think the way that I, we're using in, with our middle school students, we're using bell work and morning meeting time to really um, prime the brain for learning. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's because kids who come in in a survival brain state do not have this prefrontal cortex functioning to learn anything. I mean, they come in so rough that doesn't matter mm -hmm. how good you are as a teacher or how well you lead a school. If your students are coming in rough and we're not taking the time to teach them how to breathe deeply to teach them how powerful movement is, to teach them about rhythm, to teach them and to give them opportunities to use sensory stimuli, then we're not we're not meeting them in brain development. Mm. So um, I have I have a question for you because my next question is can you give me a visualization of of what this looks like? But I'm going to actually flip this and I'm going to tell you what I did because I noticed that this was a problem. And this is before I knew about brain state. I just noticed a detachment between my students and I. Mm -hmm. And I felt like we needed to have that time to get to know each other a little bit better. Um, so let me tell you what I put into practice this past mm -hmm. uh, a year ago in January when I was in the class full time. Mm -hmm. I decided over Christmas break, I said something has to change because we're just speeding right into our day. And I don't feel like this is good for the kids because we aren't having a time to slow down because they're, they just come in hot every day. Right. You know, right. we're not having a time to get ourselves calm and get ourselves ready for learning. So 
they would come in. We would have our, our morning uh, routine of them putting their stuff away, going to the bathroom, that kind of thing. I would play a transition song to come to the carpet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first thing we would do is we would have kind of a student of the day. Um, we just went in alphabetical order. And they would start um, by... Uh, coming to the front if they chose to, and they would lead us through kind of these sentence stems. Hi, my name is blank, and today I am feeling blank because Mm -hmm. blank. And then some kids could ask them questions about either how they were feeling, and they would also say, um, this week this is happening in their life, so we would know something that's coming up. All right. Mm -hmm. And then they would lead us through our classroom. uh, It was kind of like a I called it a mantra, but really it was just kind of our saying. And it um, it just kind of took us through, you know, just why we're here and what kind of a day we're going to have and and that kind of thing. We would say that every single day together. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we would do I found on Go Noodle. That mm-hmm. they have these, they have this section called flow. So mm-hmm. every every day, then they would get to choose the flow, and we would do one of those. It's it's more centered around meditation and being Absolutely. still and paying attention to our bodies mm-hmm. and things like that. So we would do that, and then we would move into our lesson. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like something that is along the lines of what you're describing? And get, I guess what kind of feedback would you give me on that? And then what types of things have you seen teachers do with their students? So that is your, so you're doing exact, that is those, it, those routines that you have set up and those really are routines or rituals mm-hmm. um, because they know what to expect when they come in and they know there's going to be some time, you know, to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love, and Go Noodle is such a great resource for us mm-hmm. because there are movement activities, there's dancing, um, there's meditation. We, we use, we don't use the term meditation in the classroom. Mm-hmm. We use the term focused attention practices. Okay. And I um, used mindfulness. We talked about and, being yeah, mindful. And mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, um, so what you set up is fabulous. Um, what, one of the things that we know is that when kids come in, like you said, hot, and when they come in rough, sometimes, and I'm sure you saw this too, they weren't even able to share with you how they were feeling with words. You know, sometimes, because we always get, and when we do circle time, like similar to what you do, we'll give them the option to pass. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times kids will pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see that, you know, a lot. And so, one of the things that I would suggest is really instead of, because we know the cortex, the prefrontal cortex, that's the language of words. But when kids come in rough, sometimes they don't, number one, they, they don't have the words and they don't want to share the words mm-hmm. and they really don't know how they feel. So I am loving our sensation word wall that we're using, where in a circle, the students can come in, pick a sensation word off the wall, and they draw it. And they give it a shape, and they give it a color, and they might give it a size. And it can be just a scribble. It could be an object. Because it's much easier to, to really explain, instead of saying, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling angry, it's to know that I'm teary or I'm edgy or I'm shaky or I'm calm, or I'm um, stuck, Mm -hmm. or those are sensation words. And we actually, as a class, created some of the ones that my seventh graders created were gooey and butterfly-ish and numb. And so we let them, you know, they actually created some of those sensation words. I'm really happy to hear that that you have something like that because that's something that I struggled with is I wanted them to share feelings, but it was either happy or sad. Yeah. And And I feel like that is, (laughs) it's just not enough. You know, I always felt that. It's, and it really, you know, my colleague at Butler, um, Dr. Oliver, I, I love what she says about how we need to expand the feeling vocabulary of our students, but we do. I, I agree with her. But sometimes we don't even know what those, we can't, we just don't know those feelings. Mm -hmm. But we know when our stomach, when we have, when we feel shaky, we, you know, we can describe that because a sensation is a physicalized emotion. I don't know if that's a word, but it is today. 
a physicalized Makes complete emotion. sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and Dan Siegel says, what you can name, you can tame. And what's shareable is bearable. So using your morning meeting time to for art is very important. We're giving them an opportunity to draw that sensation because when you draw it and you give it that color and that size and that shape, you are actually taking it out of your body and putting it in a container outside of you where it's safe. You know, when you can say, I'm really shaky today and you draw it, it's almost like you're relieving that sensation. You're lessening it by naming it mm-hmm. and drawing it. Mm-hmm. And um, and that feels, that feels it's calming to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of research to back that up. We know art and we know, um, you know, anytime you draw with, a, you know, any type of medium, I mean, not any type, but we start with something that is, you know, like markers or colored pencils mm-hmm. or, you know, just, um, or just a pen, just, you know, you can just take a pen or pencil and just etch mm-hmm. what you want to. But it, those, those type of opportunities, and we're also drumming in our morning meeting and you, and we're using our laps mm-hmm. and we're clapping or, or snapping and you don't even have to have, to have a drum. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we're, um, pulling up. I love, I use YouTube all the time and they have metronome beats you can because the calming beat is si- between 60 and 80 beats per minute so we'll put a metronome or I'll put music on you can google music 60 to 80 beats per minute mm-hmm. and then the kids will make up their own rhythm pattern um and so then we we follow it does that have to do with the heartbeat it absolutely does mm-hmm. and you know that that it's that parasympathetic response that responds when we're calm, when it's that coherent heart rhythm, mm-hmm. and so um, actually it goes forty to six. They have music that's forty to sixty beats per minute, and then sixty to eighty beats per minute. But in that range, is um, it's very regulating mm-hmm. because that is that's that you know that that heart rate that is um, has found a coherent pattern. Mm. Thank and you so much the, for explaining that to us. That helps absolutely. That helps me to get a better understanding of what this practice actually looks like mm-hmm. in a classroom day to day. And it doesn't. One of the things I, you know, we know is that um, it doesn't look the same in any classroom. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what's so. The, the thing that we have in common when when educators in schools and districts are implementing this framework, they are using the four legs, mm-hmm. but it all looks very different. So we're using these sequined pillows, Mm. you know, these, um, yeah, those are fun. (laughs) Yeah. And these are very regulating. I mean, these truly, when you can sit and you can hold it, it's, there's pressure and it feels comforting. And then you can actually draw initials. You could draw a design or you could just move it and look at the patterns and move back and forth. We have found that this has been, um, we'll pass the pillow around or this will be part of our amygdala first aid area. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with um, hand warmers that you put inside of mittens. Mm-hmm. Um, and with our younger kids, we will, uh, they'll pass it around and they'll feel the warmth in their hands. And as they hold it, they'll take three deep breaths and pass it to the next person in the circle. So you, again, sometimes kids don't have the words, but, um, that's meeting them in development, you know, when we're tapping into the sensations. Mm. So I'd like to kind of switch the, the conversation over to our teachers, Mm -hmm. because unfortunately students are not the only humans in school buildings that are going through some sort of trauma in their life. And although it, it probably looks different, Um, because of, you know, just being older um, and having different types of problems, you know, and I don't know, I don't even know if that's safe to assume, Um, but teachers are dealing with trauma in their lives. Do you have any advice to offer them as they go into their classrooms and schools? Well, first of all, um, thank you for asking that question, because a dysregulated staff will have dysregulated students. And when we are coming in and feeling so reactive and when we're anxious about all that's on our plates as educators today, I mean, we're entering the testing season now, mm-hmm. you know, right? This I is do. March <laughs> yep. and April. I mean, this is, you know, so, and our test scores are, they, they need to show student growth, 
they need to show building growth and we get letter grades. And um, it's just, at, it, it can unnerve us. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the things that I'm sharing with districts, and, and again, the leadership of a building is critical to educator well-being. And I am encouraging and begging administrators, all of these strategies that we are wanting children to have, I want the building administrator to give to his or her staff. So focused attention practices every morning as a staff. Um, Having an area in the building where teachers can go and have some nice distilled water, grab a handful of almonds, write in a journal, pick up an affirmation out of an affirmation jar, doodle a little bit, hold a sequined pillow, mm-hmm. um, put some nice scented hand lotion on, have a section of a, a, um, of aromathera- aromatherapy with a little lavender and have a basket of cotton balls that a teacher can pick up in the morning, take three deep breaths. There's a lot of research um, behind um, some of the, um, the um, essential oils mm-hmm. that um, are very regulating um, to the nervous system. Um, that research is just beginning mm-hmm. to come in. Mm-hmm. But all of these ways, um, when you model those with your staff, then you have a staff who are feeling not only calmer, but there's buy-in and they will be more um, willing to try these with students. So as I share with... No, go ahead. Yeah, no, as I share with administrators, your building is your classroom. And as I share with superintendents, your district is your classroom. So we have... Here's another connection. You know those waiter pads... You've yes. heard, I think you, when you've heard, so you know that you can get them on Amazon or Walmart or you can make your own. Mm-hmm. It's called Take Your Order. So we're encouraging not only teachers to take your order of different students. So we'll take two students order a day. So you ask them, what do you need from me today? What can I do for you today? And so the students will say, I want it, at least my kids have said, I want an extra bathroom break. Um, I want to, I want you to notice when I'm frustrated Um, I want you to move me away from so-and-so. I want to sit in a different spot. Um, I want to leave the classroom when I'm frustrated. So I write all of those down without judgment. And I say to my students, I'm going to try to at least get one or two of these. But if I can. Mm -hmm. And administrators need to be using this strategy with their staff. What do you need from me today? It's so interesting to hear you say that because I... I, when I was teaching full time, I would say this: I would not want to run my classroom in a way that I, in a way that projected a school that I wouldn't want to work for, or a. So if right. I wouldn't want my principal to say something to me, I wouldn't say it to my students. And I love that you're bringing this up because, mm-hmm. even though we're talking about students versus teachers going through trauma, we're still humans going through trauma, and it, it right. doesn't really seem to me and what you're saying that there's a really a whole lot of difference in how we should be taught to handle those emotions that we're feeling. Right. Absolutely. And, and it's got to be consistent too. You know, mm-hmm. we've got to be in tune. We have to build those healthy and strengthen those connections with our staff. Um, and, you know, that I, I, I've always said if a building or a district or a classroom, there are two facets to academic and emotional and mental well-being. And that is if we feel safe and if we feel felt, we will learn. And that really models how the brain develops from the back to the front and from the inside out. Because the brain stem, when, when we're functioning from those lower areas, that brain stem is asking, am I safe? So those kids that come in mistrusting adults, um, are, are really looking around and everything they perceive in that state of, of brain function looks and feels like a threat. Mm-hmm. And they are reading our nonverbal, much like the teachers in our building. I know when I am in a stress response state, I'm not listening to words. 
I'm trembling. Um, I'm not thinking clearly and I'm not trusting my environment the way I need to. Mm -hmm. And I have a developed brain. So, you know, I, I, we have this incredible opportunity to be neural, like Joe Bolte Taylor says, you are a neural sculptor in your Mm -hmm. classroom. And as an administrator, you are a neural sculptor for your educators. Mm -hmm. And, um, it just, it's all really, it's so intermingled and it's, it's, it's really very holistic when the framework is implemented well. So just like I asked you with the students, um, in a, in a teacher's class who is implementing these practices, can I give you a scenario Mm-hmm. Um, of a teacher and a principal, and would you tell me what you would ex- what you would hope that a that a, a principal who is trying to support this teacher's well being would mm-hmm. would react? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so there's a staff meeting or a meeting with a grade level about new testing expectations, mm-hmm. and it is very it's very flyby. It is this is what we're doing. This is when it needs to be done. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into detail for everything, but it has to be done by this date. And by the way, that date is in a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And you have a teacher or teachers who exude extreme frustration verbally, um, leave angry and say angry things at the end mm-hmm. of that meeting. Like, I don't know when I'm supposed to get this done. I guess mm-hmm. I'll just take time away from my prep period or something that could come across as disrespectful, but they are clearly experiencing stress. Mm-hmm. What would you hope that a principal who hears this would respond? You know, how, how do you hope that they would respond to that? Well, so again, another great question. Um, and it's no different than how we would want to respond to our students. And that is the very first thing that came to mind because I could feel I mean, as you described that scenario, I was right there. Mm-hmm. And it's validating how that teacher is feeling. You know, it is it is validating and saying, this must feel overwhelming to you. This must feel impossible to do in the next week and a half. And then I would wait to hear because that to be validated first feels that that feels safe. And you feel connected. Mm-hmm. And so as an administrator, if these regulations were put upon me, because typically that's what happens mm-hmm. as a school leader, I'm not making these up. These are given, these are handed down to me. Right. And so I'm in a stress response state because my secondary or elementary director, you know, has said this has to be done. Mm-hmm. So I would validate for a few minutes and I would learn as much as I could about the feeling level. Mm -hmm. And then once there was some calm, because see what I'm doing is I'm co-regulating with my staff. And when we're co-regulating with our staff, then we are not only learning more about how they feel, but we are helping and assisting them to to really be at their very, very best Mm -hmm. in moments of high stress. Mm -hmm. And then I would share my own frustration. There's nothing more powerful than being transparent. And I would share, I am feeling how you are feeling because this, this is exactly when I, when I started this meeting today, I could have done it differently. Mm -hmm. And I was in a stress response state. So I think, you know, again, it's that attachment and that so validating and then asking those three questions that for me are a game changer. And these are touch points. And this, um, those questions, one, but we, we never ask them if everybody's hot and everybody's dysregulated. We only ask those questions when we are both calming down and we are at that um, calm state of prefrontal cortex, um, functioning. And so after validating and after being transparent and sharing my own frustration and sharing, I probably could have done this in a much different way, how I 
handed down this work to you all. I would then begin to ask, what do you need from me? How can I help? Please let me know how I can help. And then what can we do to make this better? And you may not know those answers right now, but I want you to think about them and then come back to me. I'm here for you this afternoon. I'm here for you today. I'm here this week. Mm-hmm. I love those questions. They're so simple, but so powerful. Mm-hmm. They really are. And they, you know, and I, again, I have seen, and, and what they, they're, they transcend all ages. Mm-hmm. Yes. It doesn't have to change depending on whether you're teaching nope. kindergarten or a high school senior. Yep. Love it. Or or a teacher. <laughs> a teacher, yeah, or a colleague. Right, right. right. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, give me a little bit of insight about that. Let's say you're a colleague of someone who you are teaching with. Your teaching partner is really, really struggling. Mm-hmm. Would you just say, would you say the exact same things for them as well? You know, and let's say, you know, the trauma has nothing to do with that teacher, with that um, that colleague, but they're just really noticing some serious stress coming from from this mm-hmm. teacher. You know, how do you approach that in a professional and a, and a non-invasive way? Because sometimes even teachers, they don't ask for the support that they need. Right. Because they feel no, either it, embarrassed um, right. or like they don't want to drag other people down. They don't want to be looked at as negative. I know that's how I felt for sure when I was going through my season of burnout. I kept it Mm -hmm. all inside, even though it was radiating from me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I kept it Mm -hmm. inside and I didn't want anybody to know that I was feeling so terrible. Right. And, you know, there is to me, and I don't know if everyone would agree with this, but I feel there is this unspoken association with, with the word educator or teacher, because traditionally we work in silos And traditionally, we feel like if we are not perceived as strong and as happy and as grateful, um, then, you know, we are we are not enough. You know, it's just we are not enough. And especially when you are working with difficult students, um, it just you feel defeated. I mean, I think of that word defeated just and you feel so often hopeless. So if I see that in my colleague, um, depending on the relationship that I have and, and to what degree, I always think um, a letter, you know, a, a little note in their mailbox. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you were feel that you seemed sad or you seemed overwhelmed. Please let me know what I can do for you. Noticing is another touch point. We, we encourage teachers to really notice, um, not, and it's so different than praising, but just notice, you know, a new pair of shoes or notice a haircut or notice a smile or notice someone being, you know, really, um, just coming in extremely, um, upset. I mean, we just notice, we don't evaluate or praise, but we just notice that. So I I do feel that with a colleague, we would use those same type of strategies, which are, which we're Mm -hmm. Mm co-regulating, you know, we're co-regulating. And that's really what we do as parents. I know if I had known this research, when my three children were little, I would have parented very differently. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have been a different mom. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, no regrets, but, you know, I, I can look back and think how, you know, I became so um, involved and I got just swept up in the conflict and in the power struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was dis- disciplining when I was so dysregulated. I mean, I can, I can see it. I can feel it. I can picture it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, whether it's with our colleagues or, you know, it's, it really is about us all. Mm -hmm. Thank you so, so much for sharing all this information. The more that you share, the more simplified it becomes. Although Mm -hmm. I'm sure 
in in practice, it is not as simple. But the idea itself is simply it comes back to those relationships, those touch points. Right. So, those touch points and mm-hmm. and that co-regulation piece mm-hmm. is really what the framework is about. Um, Dr. Desatels, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Um, I would love to share that um, we have a new book out mm-hmm. and it just came out in January and it is about everything we've discussed on this podcast today. My colleague, Michael, and I spent all last year working together and and writing this together. And what I love about this book, it's called Eyes Are Never Quiet, um, Looking Beneath the Behaviors of Our Most Troubled Students. And I love that it has the why at the beginning of the book. And then you'll see when the book has a black spine. Mm -hmm. And then at the end um, are pages that give okay, I understand the why now, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And so we we intentionally created a section of brain-aligned evidence-based strategies that um, are for uh, bell work, brain intervals, um, morning meetings, focused attention practices, mm-hmm. all of the things we've discussed today. Thank you for sharing that. Are you finding that schools are doing book studies on this as a yes. staff? Yes, I think, you know, it's really... Um, when you can sit and um, you can really talk about, um, you know, a scenario and then say, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I tried this strategy, have this work for you. I, I do feel that book studies are just a great way really to build relationships, mm-hmm. um, to create, you know, their touch points, book studies are touch points. And um, even, you know, having, even beginning to build out a book study with parents mm-hmm. um, is another is another part part of this too. That's an incredible idea. Well, because our conversations get so deep and so serious on this podcast, I do like to end with a quick lightning round of this or that. Absolutely. So, are you familiar with that setup? Um, I don't know, but I'm I'm ready. <laughs> so, I'll give you two choices, and you'll just simply tell me which one you would choose. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Cookies or cake? Mm, cookies. Mm. Uh, cat or dog, and I saw two. I saw both of those behind you. Did you see? So we have three <laughs> cats and three rescue cats and one rescue dog who's mm-hmm. sitting right in my chair, and she de- does not leave me. So she's. Oh, listening. I don't know. I couldn't pick. I couldn't pick this or that. I have to say both. Oh, that's okay. Uh, computer games or video games? Mm, I would say computer games. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Burned In Teacher podcast. I cannot wait to get this episode out to share with our uh-huh. listeners. It is going to be so helpful to them. Thank you, Amber. I really, really loved um, sharing with you today. So thank you for having me. Anytime. So as you've probably noticed, both before downloading this episode and while listening to it, this is one of the longest episodes we've ever had. But because of the depth and breadth Dr. Desitel shared with us about this oh-so-important topic, I just couldn't split it up, and I felt like it needed to be one episode. So lots of tips and takeaways today. Number one, schools are changing their perspective, and we're finally seeing a shift from a zero-tolerance policy to trying to understand the brain and how it works and how when we punish in traditional ways, we are re-traumatizing our students but aren't getting the long-term behavioral change that we and the students so desperately need. The second takeaway is we're moving away from classroom and behavior management and instead thinking about this as co-regulation because you can't manage another human being. And that's so, so true. The third takeaway is students don't come to school with experiences with adults who can soothe and touch and give warm eye contact and warm emotions to them. So it becomes our job to become that adult mentor in their lives. The fourth takeaway is attachment is the carrier of all development. Oh, that's so powerful. I have to say that again. Attachment is the carrier of all development. When you have students moving from home to home or they have unpredictable chronic adversity, building relationships and strengthening attachments is the only way to help them to make those connections and therefore allowing them an environment where they can learn. When a child escalates, we unintentionally escalate and engage in a power struggle. 
take a second to step away and take care of your own brain state. Take between three and 10 deep breaths or more if you need it, not just for ourselves, but to model how to get ourselves calm in a stressful situation. The sixth takeaway is educational neuroscience has four parts. The first one is attachment relationship. The second one is co-regulation, that sensory opportunity. The third one is teaching students about neuroanatomy, learning with your students and building relationships by learning side by side about our own brains and how they work. And the fourth one is educator brain state. We don't respond well when our own stress response systems are activated, so we need to take steps to take care of our own brain state. And we've talked about this several times on the podcast. The seventh takeaway is there are lots of ways to deregulate, to focus on the process, not the end product. The first and my favorite one is the two by 10 strategy. This is intentional two minutes for 10 days in a row to talk to students about their passions or their lives about them and their life to strengthen relationships. The second way to deregulate an escalating situation is to offer that student validation. That's saying things like, that must feel very blank, or this must make you feel so blank, or you sound so blank. Instead of answering a complaint or encouraging their escalation, hear the feeling and mirror that and wait for a response. The third way is by using bell work and morning meetings from five to 10 minutes, creating a ritual at the beginning and or the end of the day to create family privilege to the classroom. Because students are living in daily chronic unpredictability and working with that daily ritual will help them with their mindfulness and focused attention practices that they need so desperately. The next way is students either can't identify or verbalize how they feel because they don't have the words. Students don't know how they feel. So using a sensation word wall can help students to explain. Instead of saying you feel sad or angry, they maybe feel stuck or shaky or teary or edgy or butterfly-ish. These are such great ways to help students to identify how they're feeling at different parts of their day. I love that she said this, and she was quoting Dan Seagal. What you can name, you can tame. What's shareable is bearable. And this sensory word wall is so, so essential in helping students to do that. Another way to help students to regulate is by drumming or clapping or snapping using a metronome beat. And Lori said that you can find these on YouTube. It helps kids to make up their own pattern and beat to help them regulate. And like we sort of discovered or like I discovered while we were talking, it really does have to do with a regulated heartbeat. Another way is by using sequined pillows or passing hand warmers around and taking deep breaths to calm down students who are needing some calm in their life. This last section of tips and takeaways has everything to do with teachers dealing with trauma or stress or anxiety. Dr. Desitel said that a dysregulated staff will create dysregulated students, and isn't that true? She suggests that everything that we offer to students in our classrooms, administrators should do to co-regulate their staff by offering a space that is calming. Principals, when you model these practices with your staff, your staff will be more inspired and encouraged to bring those practices into their classrooms for their kids. Consistency is key. If a building or a district or a classroom practices the following quote, they're going to be a much more co-regulated space. So here it is. If we feel safe and we feel felt, we will learn. I'll say that again. If we feel safe and we feel felt, we will learn. That's such a powerful statement, both for teachers and students alike. So validate, be transparent, ask these three questions, both to teachers and teachers ask these to students. These are game-changing questions when both parties are in a calm state. Are you ready? Here they are. What do you need from me? How can I help you? What can we do together to solve this? How we support a colleague who is struggling or feeling defeated or helpless is by noticing. 
dropping a note that validates and shares that you're there for them should they choose to come to you for support is really, really essential in building that relationship and helping them to feel connected and understood. And that, of course, is what I'm going to end with. Noticing. Building relationships is all about paying attention, noticing things that are different about your students, both positive and negative, bringing it up in a conversation, noticing new shoes, a new haircut, or if they come in extremely upset, acknowledging those feelings and having a conversation about them can make a huge difference. If you've stuck with us to the end, I'm so appreciative. And I know that this is going to be a very powerful episode in helping you to change your perspective on the behaviors of your students, especially if they're going through trauma or if you've gone through trauma in the past. I would definitely advise that you listen to this again, take notes. And of course, you can access all of the show notes from this episode and other episodes at burnedinteacher.com slash podcast. Until next week, I wish you a career and life full of happiness and fulfillment. You just took another step to become a burned in teacher. Burn on. That's it for this week's episode of the burned in teacher podcast. Until next week, take a deep breath. You are your own hero. And you just took another step to becoming a burned in teacher. Burn on. If you want to be updated on the latest burned in teacher podcast episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the burned in teacher podcast on Google Play or iTunes. Also, please consider leaving a review and leave a rating so that other teachers who are feeling the burnout can find this podcast to help them feel supported as they continue their journey out of burnout. Thanks so much.